Hi, everyone, and welcome to Ask the Horse Live. I'm your host, Michelle Anderson. Tonight, we're busting equine nutrition myths and talking about how to best feed your horses. The event is sponsored by Purina. To answer your questions, we're joined by two expert panelists, Dr. Claire Tunis, who is an independent equine nutritionist who owns Clarity Equine Nutrition, and Dr. Robert Jacobs, who's an equine innovations manager at Purina. Uh, welcome to both of you. Hi, great to be here. Yeah, thanks for having me. So we're going to start with you, Dr. Tunis. Um, can you tell us what you do in your role as an independent equine nutritionist and what that means? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm basically an equine nutrition consultant. So I get hired by owners, vets, trainers to help them put together diet plans for their horses in their care. And then I also do some um, consulting work for uh, feed and supplement companies, helping them with product development, sales team training, technical writing, that kind of thing. So do a little bit of everything. Uh, and Dr. Jacobs, um, so your title is interesting. So what does it mean to be the equine innovation manager with Purina? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it basically means that I get to manage the research and development process that goes on for Purina Animal Nutrition as it relates to the horse business. So I uh, work with a phenomenal group of people at our uh, Purina Animal Nutrition Center um, in Gray Summit, Missouri, where we house, amongst other species, but we also have 80 uh, head of horses that range in age from a couple of days old all the way up to our senior horses. And we do research into all different areas of nutritional physiology, including taste and palatability, eating behavior, exercise, growth and development, reproductive physiology. And then one of my new favorites is the microbiome. And so my role is to develop new horse feeds, develop new horse formulas, and take those from the R&D stage all the way up until they are available on the shelves for you to feed to your horses. Okay, so you mentioned microbiome, so I'm going to go ahead and ask you a question right now before we jump into our actual questions. Can you tell our audience a little bit about what the microbiome is so that uh, they understand? Sure. Yeah. For sure, yeah. The microbiome is such a fascinating topic. You know, at the base level, the microbiome simply means all of the bacteria, viruses, protozoa, and yeast that inhabit a certain part of the horse's body. You know, for our purposes, we really focus on the microbiome in the horse's hindgut, so in the large colon and the cecum of the horse. The microbiome of the horse, and we'll speak specifically to the bacteria, are largely responsible for the digestion through, through fermentation of the indigestible fibers that the horse eats, so all the grass, uh, the indigestible portions of the grass and the hay and the concentrates that we feed our horse. And those bacteria produce really important components called the volatile fatty acids that the horse needs as an energy source. But more importantly, we're learning about the microbiome's role in everything from health and, and disease to exercise, performance, growth, development, immune function, all of these different fascinating topics. And so, um, you know, in my mind, the microbiome truly is uh, the next frontier, not only equine nutrition, but nutrition as a whole. Okay, well, with that, uh, I'm going to go ahead and give our audience uh, a overview of our format for Ask Our Horse Live. So we're going to start with the questions that people submitted during registration. If you're listening live and you'd like to submit a question, uh, you can do so via the app that you're listening through. We're going to do our best to get to as many of your questions as possible. Um, and feel free to ask follow-up questions as the doctors are uh, answering the questions. If you're listening to the podcast recording of this event and you'd like to join us live in the future, please visit thehorse.com slash askthehorselive to register for notifications. Okay, Dr. Tunis, let's start with you. Um, 
we have a question from LeRae in Canada, and she has a 17-year-old mare who's a Tennessee walker, and she said that she has huge crest and fat pockets, even with limited pasturing and wearing a grazing muzzle. Is there a supplement that will help her with this? So can we talk a little bit about what might be causing those pockets of adiposity? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, we, we all, unfortunately, <laughs> lay down uh, extra body fat when our calorie intake is greater than our expenditure, right? So it's called being in a positive energy balance. And if you consume more calories than you need, your body stores that for times of famine as body fat. Um, and some of our horses do that extremely well. Um, Tennessee walkers would be a breed, uh, in my mind, that do that quite well. Um, some of our other, what we affectionately term, kind of our thrifty breeds, um, also do that very well. Everything from Welsh mountain ponies to Morgan horses to Pasifinos to Mustangs, all those kind of what I think of as like old breeds, um, the breeds that really get by really well on not very much. Um, and then today we tend to feed diets that are, you know, more digestible, great hay quality and the like. And so they uh, often, their genetics are such that they are very good at laying down body fat. Um, there's also the potential that um, a horse that's developing a lot of fat pockets and crest uh, fat is suffering from a condition um, called insulin dysregulation or perhaps on a bigger scale, equine metabolic syndrome. So insulin dysregulation is when a horse doesn't respond um, to insulin the way that it should. Um, you know, when we eat, we uh, simple carbohydrates go into the bloodstream, start sugar, and the body really wants to keep that circulating glucose um, at a pretty tight uh, range. And so we, in response to increasing blood glucose, we secrete insulin and insulin helps kind of get that glucose out of the bloodstream, store it on, mostly in our muscle tissue, some of it also in the liver. And if that doesn't work properly, if we're not as sensitive to insulin as we should be, um, then that whole metabolic process starts to break down and, and um, those horses can start to really store fat um, quite well. Um, and that can then develop into something called equine metabolic syndrome. Horses that have equine metabolic syndrome, there are three things. They have to be um, overweight, obese, have laminitis or a history of laminitis, and be insulin dysregulated. Um, and the reason we care about this is that those horses um, have a higher risk of developing laminitis. And in fact, there was a, a research study I recently read about, which was a really interesting. They looked at I want to say it was like 350 ponies over like four years, and they did all kinds of measurements on them, body condition scoring, weight taping them, took blood work on them. And over the four years, they saw how many of those ponies developed laminitis. And it was something like 70-something of the 300-and-something ponies developed laminitis. And when they went back to their data and said, what did we know that could have predicted which of these ponies was going to get laminitis? Um, it was the ones that had elevated insulin. So we really worry about this, um, you know, kind of combination of metabolic issues because it can unfortunately increase um, laminitis risk. So, you know, in the case of this particular horse, you know, he is of a, of a breed that perhaps is a little higher at risk of that. Um, Lorraine mentions that she's using a grazing muzzle, which is excellent. Um, these horses really do um, benefit from limiting their access to pasture. Using a grazing muzzle has been shown to reduce pasture intake by I think it was almost 85%. Um, horses eat 
large amounts of pasture. Um, some of the things like when I was a kid, we'd sort of say, oh, we'll just turn them out for less time, right? So instead of turning them out for eight hours, we turn them out for four hours. Well, research has shown that um, they're not stupid. <laughs> they just eat faster. <laughs> so um, that really doesn't work. So if you're going to put these horses that, that sort of gain weight very easily on pasture, grazing muzzle really is your friend. But um, I have some concerns here, though, because Lorraine mentions that the horse is developing huge crest and fat pockets even with the grazing muzzle. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the question is about is there a supplement to help? I'm I'm going to be a little harsh perhaps and say I think we have to take a deep breath and really ask the tough question of should this horse be on pasture at all because if it's getting these fat pockets and a crusty neck even wearing a grazing muzzle this may be an individual who shouldn't be on any pasture and I know that's a tough pill to swallow for a lot of people um, but there are horses out there that that's a reality for them um, and I'm not one for band-aids so you know, there are supplements out there that can help with insulin dysregulation if that's the underlying cause of this horse's fat deposits. And so I would actually encourage her to um, get the vet involved, get some blood work drawn, really figure out what you're really dealing with. Is this an insulin dysregulated horse? You know, are we looking at a potential risk of laminitis because it is insulin dysregulated? I like, I, I want the data. I want to know what I'm really dealing with. Um, and then make a plan. And there are some things like resveratrol that have been shown to help improve insulin sensitivity. So if that is part of the problem, something like that might help. But I think we're really looking at an overall management plan, part of which may be no access to pasture, um, increasing exercise if possible. You know, we need to get the energy expenditure up um, so that we're hopefully burning more calories than we're taking in. And that'll help get rid of some of those fat pockets as well um, you know the vet may decide if the horse is quite overweight that there is a need for medical intervention and there are um, things that can be done there uh, too but um, it's really about a whole management plan and getting your vet involved um, Dr. Jacobs our next question is for you um, and it is from Pierre in California and it's everyone's favorite topic which is beet pulp um, Pierre wants to know <laughs> Will feeding bee pulp increase the chance of a horse choking? Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about maybe why you'd feed bee pulp and then if there is a choking risk and what you might do to mitigate that if that's a concern? Yeah, absolutely. You know, bee pulp is one of those phenomenal ingredients that, you know, for a while had a, had a little bit of a bad rap about it. You know, it's a byproduct. You know, should we be feeding it to horses? And, you know, more and more we're identifying bee pulp as, as really a phenomenal ingredient for horses, right? It's a, it's a high fiber, um, you know, ingredient um, derived obviously from, from sugar beets that, that are used and grown in the country mainly for the production of, of sugar. Um, but, you know, in addition to being high in fiber, it's low in sugars, it's low in starches and sugars. And so Dr. Tunis was talking about, you know, horses that may benefit from not being on pasture, but what's the fiber source in that horse's diet? Well, beet pulp may be a good option, you know, or at least a part of um, that horse's, you know, diet. And so, you know, beet pulp is, is offered and fed in a variety of different ways. There's a lot of commercial concentrates that incorporate beet pulp, whether that be beet pulp shreds, um, so varying sizes of, of that, of that uh, beet pulp itself, um, and, and a variety of, of ground beet pulp as well that's either incorporated into a pellet or otherwise in the diet. 
Um, but commonly, people are feeding beet pulp to horses um, in its shredded form by itself. And, and typically, this shredded form is offered in two different ways, one um, with molasses added to it and one with no molasses. So that's an important consideration to make. The one that has added molasses will have added non-structural carbohydrates. So for those horses that have those sensitivities to non-structural carbohydrates that are eating beet pulp, you do want to make sure you're feeding them the, the beet pulp that doesn't have the added molasses to it. Um, but when people are feeding beet pulp to their horses, um, one of the recommendations that, that a lot of people have is to soak that beet pulp, right? There's, there is some thought um, and, and really kind of urban myth that when you feed that horse dried beet pulp, that it soaks up all the saliva and it causes an esophageal obstruction or better known as a choke in horses. And while the, the data is kind of not really supporting of, of that, the data does support that feeding soaked beet pulp does reduce the chance of esophageal obstruction due to choke. And I want to be very clear, um, you know, that, you know, horses, you know, beet pulp, feeding soaked beet pulp does not increase the risk uh, of choke in horses. However, if your horse does have a previous experience with choke or your horse has choked in the past, um, that does put them at risk to choke again in the future, right? As the horse chokes, it actually causes some damage um, to the esophagus, which can cause swelling, which can cause the deposition of scar tissue in, in, in a bad enough case, um, which can actually reduce the overall opening in that esophagus, which then can make that horse at risk of choke again. So I think it's very important for horse owners to have an understanding of what their horse's individual risk for choke is. Other things that you can do um, to reduce the risk of choke when feeding beef pulp is to try and reduce the consumption rate. Um, you know, that that horse, uh, the rate at which that horse is consuming that beet pulp. And you can do that in a variety of different ways, offering, you know, smaller mini meals um, to the horse. I've actually seen people, you know, feeding a larger, uh, in a larger pan, and they've actually put softballs um, and, and larger, you know, things that the horse can't break and take bites of in that pan. So the horse has to move it around in a way to provide some stimulation, but also, you know, cause that horse to slow down their eating. And then also feeding in a pan on the ground. We've actually done some research where we've actually seen horses chewing um, in a much more natural way when their feed is being fed to them in a pan versus being fed to them at chest height. Um, and by a pan, I mean a pan on the ground. Um, and so I think it's important to take all of these things into consideration when you're thinking about choking your horse. But bringing it kind of full circle back to beet pulp, you know, no, beet pulp will not increase the risk of choke. I do recommend that people do soak um, the beet pulp that they feed to horses. And it also gets more water um, into that horse's diet as well, which is also a great thing, helps to lubricate the esophagus um, and get feed, you know, passing into the horse's GI tract. We have a question that's come in from our live audience. Uh, Dr. Tunis, I'm going to give this one to you. It's from Mary, and she wants to know, what does it mean if a horse has a hay belly? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so sometimes that can mean that there's a lot of indigestible fiber in the diet. Um, and so actually we talked about this briefly at the beginning when Dr. Jacobs was explaining, you know, what the microbiota is and kind of what it does. And he mentioned that, um, you know, we tend to think about the bacteria, that they're really um, responsible for the fermentation of the structural carbohydrate in the diet. And so there are many different types of carbohydrates um, in the equine ration. Everything from starches and sugars, which I think is what we think of when we think about carbs. Um, but fiber is also a carbohydrate. So, and there are fibers that are easily fermentable. So when we were talking about beet pulp, um, we just heard that um, beet pulp has a lot of readily fermentable carbohydrates, um, which makes it a very useful feed ingredient. Um, 
And then there are other forms of structural carbohydrate that are not as easily fermentable. Um, and as our haze become more mature, meaning that when the plant has been left in the field um, for a longer period of time, so that the grass or whatever it is, the alfalfa, whatever the plant is, is being turned into hay, um, becomes more stemmy before it becomes cut, the more structural carbohydrate there is. So the more mature the hay is, the stemmier it is, the more structural carbohydrate there is, and potentially that's going to take longer to ferment because the carbohydrates in that are, are kind of more complicated for the bacteria to break down. So, you know, when I think of a hay belly, I often, you know, I'm always curious about what the quality of the hay is that's being fed, and is it, um, you know, a stemmier, more mature, slightly less digestible type of hay um, than, a, than another one that perhaps, you know, wouldn't cause a hay belly. And we have a follow-up question about bee pulp for Dr. Jacobs. Um, Heather is asking whether it's a myth that adding bee pulp increases the sugar levels in your horse's diet. So we just, we just touched on carbohydrates, but I think it's a sugar beet name that can be confusing to horse owners. So Dr. J Jacobs, what are, what are your thoughts on that? For sure. It, it, you're absolutely correct. You know, sugar beet pulp or sugar beets from which beet pulp is derived kind of give it that connotation that it is high in sugars. But no, you know, beet pulp. And again, I just want to point out beet pulp that is not, does not have added molasses to it um, is not high in sugar. It's low in non-structural carbohydrates. It's high in that fermentable fiber. Um, that's an important component, an important carbohydrate for that horse. Um, but it does not add an appreciable amount of sugar into that horse's diet. We have another question from our live audience, Dr. Tunis. I'm going to give this one to you. It's from Cynthia, and she says that the the barn where she boards her horse at is against her using a pelleted feed, and they say that pellets aren't good for horses. Uh, why might they think this? Is there is there any rationale for for not wanting to feed pellets? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'm assuming she's possibly meaning a hay pellet. Um, I, so um, pellets pellets don't take a lot of chewing to break down, right? They're almost kind of pre-chewed. Um, they've been ground, the particles in the pellet have been ground to a very small size and then forced through a dye under pressure and heat to create that pellet. And so when the horse chews it, they just kind of crumble and fall apart into many, many tiny particles. So a pound of pellet takes an awful lot less chewing than say a pound of long stem hay. Um, so there's a couple of concerns there. One is that they're going to be done with their meal quicker and um, then potentially get bored um, and have nothing to do. Secondly, um, you know, horses are designed to eat for long periods of time, right? Horses left to their own devices eat 16, 18 hours a day. We tend to meal feed them because it's convenient. Um, many of our horses don't have access to continuous pasture and a meal fed and many horses, you know, don't have the luxury of free fed hay or if they got free fed hay they'd be obese so that becomes tricky too um and pellets you know because they eat them so much more quickly there's that risk that they're standing around for a longer time and the digestive tract is really designed for a small trickle of fibrous food throughout the whole day the stomach is constantly secreting stomach acid when horses are grazing um and they're kind of you know chewing grass for 15 plus hours a day. While they're doing that, they are creating saliva and equine saliva buffers stomach acid. So it's a beautiful system of continuously secreted stomach acid that's needed for the start of the kind of digestion process and continuously secreted 
saliva that buffers that stomach. So we've, we've got sort of a less acidic situation there. But when we meal feed and they stand around for long periods of time not chewing, you get buildups of acid and less buffering potentially. The other thing that kind of forage and fibers do is they float on the top of that stomach and make a nice mat, kind of like a natural fiber doormat, and they stop the acid splashing about in the stomach. So again, they help reduce the risk of ulcers. But, and the, again, the microbes and the microbiome in the hindgut are also, you know, wanting a fairly continuous flow of fiber in there as well. Um, so in an ideal situation, we would feed along the stem forage. We would allow horses to eat for as long as possible. But, you know, there are times where it's actually in the best interest of the horse to feed pellets. You know, if you have a horse that has poor dentition, an older horse that, you know, the equine tooth is kind of like a lead in a mechanical pencil. It clicks down throughout its life and eventually runs out. And we don't have very good teeth or no teeth at all. Those horses really benefit from being, um, you know, on a on a, a pelleted diet. Um, I work with some horses that for other um you know, medical reasons actually need to be on pellets for whatever reason we use it when we're dealing with um, irritable bowel or sometimes with fecal water syndrome when we've got horses in loose manure, passing liquid feces, passing liquid after manure. Um, those horses sometimes benefit from having some or all of their forage be in a hay pellet form. Um, so I'm not ready to say that, uh, that pellets are, are not good for horses. I think there's a lot of good reasons to feed pellets to some individual horses but we have to understand kind of the pros and cons involved with that um, and if possible if we are going to lean heavily on pellets for the majority of the forage in the diet try to feed lots of little meals there are pellet dispensers out there that you can program to drop pellets at intervals throughout the day and actually you can create an almost um, grazing simulation type environment with some of those um, innovations so there are ways out there to feed pellets and actually mimic kind of a grazing and, and kind of get rid of those some of those concerns that I mentioned before. And then, of course, many of our performance feeds are in pellet forms, and I don't worry about that so much. There's a lot of benefit there. You can't sift out the ingredients um, the way you can potentially. And we've all seen a horse eat a textured feed and, like, eat everything and leave the pellets or eat the pellets and leave everything out. So the benefit of a pelleted performance feed is they can't do that um, and everything gets consumed. So that's a great benefit of performance feed. And, you know, those horses are probably getting a hay or pasture forage. And so I'm not so concerned about a pellet in that situation either. Okay. And Dr. Tunis, Cynthia has followed up and she's clarified that she is talking about an extruded pellet, like a performance feed. So uh, if if you want to touch on that a little bit more um, to, you, we have there's, we know that a lot of things that we do in human diet or that's in human health news will trickle over into the horse world and, and we'll, people will start talking mm. about like a pelleted feed as being a processed feed and be right. concerned about it. Is that, is that something that is a concern or is, are there reasons to have those extruded pellets? No, I actually, um, you know, actually don't have any problem with processing horse feeds. In fact, often they make them more digestible, um, which in some instances can make some ingredients safer to feed. Um, so it's not, we're, we're not talking deep, deep fried Twinkies <laughs> when we're talking about processed feed in the horse world. It's not, right? not lucky terms, yeah. No, and what I didn't mention is, for example, like in a hay pellet, um, 
because you make the particle size smaller, it's actually more easily digestible. So again, and that's part of the reason why it's helpful in some of those horses with like an irritable bowel or a fecal water syndrome type situation, or if you have horses that are harder keepers, um, the surface area is increased because you've got a smaller particle size, so there's more surface area for bacteria to adhere to and for enzymes in the small intestine to work on. So you're actually gonna get better digestion. So um, that can be a benefit in certain situations. There are certain ingredients that, for example, barley starch, corn starch are not super digestible in the equine digestive tract. Those need to be processed and heat treated so that your horse can actually um, utilize them. And you'll see a lot of feed companies claiming all kinds of special technologies in the way they've treated their starch to make it uh, safer for your horse. And that's kind of why. It's because it's, it actually makes it more digestible. By heat treating it, you change the chemical structure of the starch in those grains and make them more digestible. And then they're less likely to end up in the hindgut. And if you end up with starch in the hindgut, you really um, mess up the hindgut microbial population. They don't like that at all. Um, and so we really need, if we've got starch in the diet, we really need it digested and absorbed in the small intestine. So for those kinds of ingredients, processing is really important. Uh, Dr. Jacobs, we have a question from Heather in our live audience. She wants to know if you can de demystify whether oats and barley make horses hot. Isn't their behavior great, great being question. hot? Not For hot. sure. Yes. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. And we hear this all the time, you know, and oats and barley are, are ingredients that are very commonly fed to horses, but are also common as part of textured diets um, or sweet feed, if you will. Um, you know, and, and oats and barley are fed to horses because they're, they're decently high in calories. There's other benefits as well relative to the, the fibrous components that, that make up the hulls of the, the different seeds and things like that, but commonly added to diets, you know, as an energy source. And so, you know, horses become hot or, or, or have extra energy, um, you know, when they have extra energy in their diet. And so, certain horses will respond to certain diets in different ways. And for example, what I mean by that is you can feed a horse a diet that has the same amount of calories, so the same total amount of calories, but it derives those calories from different sources. So one could be from a textured feed, right, that derives its calories highly mainly from starches and sugars versus a feed that is higher in fat and fiber, right? And you'll see horses that will react differently to both of those. And I have seen horses that become more energetic or hot, if you will, on both of those situations. And so sometimes it's a very individual and horse specific thing where you have to identify what is truly the best feed to feed your horse. Um, you know, the thing about oats and barley when fed as individual ingredients in that diet is they basically simply add calories. They don't add them in balance with the other nutrients that your horse needs, right? And so that's why, again, it's really important to understand the overall nutrient requirements of the horse and the overall nutrient delivery to the horse as opposed to just you know providing individual ingredients so my recommendation for you know anybody that has you know seen their horse become you know more energetic or have some you know unwanted behavior when feeding a certain diet whether it be oats or barley or a textured feed or a, a fat, high fat and fiber feed is to evaluate the other things going on right is that horse simply receiving too many calories right what is that horse's daily calorie expenditure right like dr tunis was talking about earlier Right? And does that match with what the daily calorie intake is of that horse? Because I think we all, you know, horse owners, are, we're all very well aware that if a horse has extra energy, they're going to find some way to get that energy out. And, and oftentimes it's going to be doing something we don't want them to do, whether it's being ornery under saddle, whether it's chewing up your barn, or whether it's playing rough with your other horses, they're going to find some way to utilize that energy. 
So if we match the calorie expenditure as much as best as we can with the calorie intake, there's less of a chance of that horse having some of those, um, uh, you know, unwanted behaviors, if you will. And then again, like I mentioned, it's, it's, it's testing out what is the best, you know, overall diet uh, for that horse. Um, and we have about a half hour left in the broadcast. So if um, if you're sitting on your questions, go ahead and send those in to us. Um, I have a live question for Dr. Tunis, and it's from Mary Jane. And she wants to know what the difference is between grass hay and alfalfa hay. Is alfalfa too rich for breeds like warm bloods? Yeah, so alfalfa is a legume hay. And grass and you know grass hay is coming. They can be warm season grasses like Bermuda or cold season grasses like Timothy, and that can have some uh, basic differences between them. But generally, when we think about legume hays like alfalfa, we think high protein, high calcium. Um, they're typically higher calories pound for pound than a grass hay would be. So if you put like a pound of Timothy up against a pound of alfalfa, there's going to be very slightly more calories in that pound of alfalfa than in the pound of Timothy. Um, I, I feed a lot of warm bloods alfalfa uh, as part of their diet. I generally don't feed more than about 25-30% of the total forage intake as alfalfa. Um, I tend to find more than that. We have too much protein in the diet, a little too much calcium, um, which means they've got to get rid of that somehow, which means they have to drink more water, urinate more to get rid of it. Um, but I do find that the little extra protein and the slightly better amino acid profile of alfalfa can be beneficial, especially in performance horses. So unless there's a reason why um, or shouldn't have alfalfa, um, for example, we're trying to cut calories or whatever, I'm certainly not opposed to having you know, some amount of alfalfa in the diet. We have a question from our live audience from Janet. Uh, Dr. Dr. Jacobs, I'm going to give this one to you. She wants to know, is soybean meal bad for horses? Uh, and is it better to have a feed without soy in it? Great question. Absolutely. You know, soy is another one of those kind of trigger ingredients for, for a lot of individuals. And we add soybeans, uh, soybean meal to, to equine diets uh, for a very good reason. Soybean meal is a very good source of protein for horses. Um, and soybean meal also has a very good amino acid profile, meaning not only does it have a lot of protein, um, but it has a very good quality protein as well relative to the amino acids that, that are that are in there. And so, you know, soybeans have, um, you know, I would say gotten a bad rap for a couple of reasons. And first and foremost is they are a trigger ingredient when it comes to equine allergies. Um, you know, we can spend a lot of time and probably a whole one of these uh, podcast sessions, if you will, um, talking about equine allergies and, and we'll try to wrap it up. I'll try to put it in a nice little bow here and that equine allergies um, are common, but equine food allergies are actually relatively uncommon or uncommon. And so it's actually difficult to diagnose um, equine food allergies, serum allergy tests, as well as um, uh, skin tests are actually very inaccurate um, when it comes to the diagnosis of, of true equine food allergies. The best way to do that is actually through what we call true exclusion diets. So taking that individual ingredient out of the horse's diet and seeing if um, that allergic response improves. So, you know, for, for horse owners, um, a lot of the times there is a belief that their horse may have an allergy um, uh, to soybeans, um, specifically soybean meal. Um, when, when in a lot of cases, that's just not, it's not entirely accurate. The other reason that um, soybeans um, have gotten a little bit of a, a bad reputation is uh, because of the quantity of phytoestrogens that are contained in, in soybeans. Um, you know, phytoestrogens are, are estrogenic compounds, so compounds that act um, similar to estrogen um, in, in the body. Um, 
And what we see is that yes, soybeans and soybean meal does contain um, these phytoestrogens, um, but other components of the horse's diet, specifically the grass that the horse eats, contain almost larger amounts of of these of these phytoestrogens. And more importantly, there's actually been some research done at the University of Florida and some other places, ongoing research as well, um, that has evaluated uh, phytoestrogens and the and their role in in altering the reproductive um, cyclicity in mares and in altering um, the reproductive performance in stallions, and there's absolutely no indication that that's true uh, whatsoever. So for horses that don't truly have um, a real true allergy to soybean meal, um, their soybean meal and soybeans are a phenomenal uh, ingredient to, to utilize in, in horse feed um, due to their ability to provide really high quality protein uh, in that diet. Um, we have another question about alfalfa. Dr. Tunis, I'm going to give this one to you. Um, the question is, can alfalfa contribute to scratches or pasturm dermatitis by increasing photosensitivity in horses? This is a great question. I was just reading about this today. <laughs> what are the chances? Well, it's timely then. It is very timely. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm working with a horse that has melandas. Um, so I was doing some background work on that because um, there's a something there about biotin, which I couldn't find any actual real research on. So I don't think that's a thing. But there is a potential um, photosensitization to alfalfa. So in some horses, um, UC Davis actually did some work on this. They had a number of horses that were brought into uh, them that had broken out in photosensitive reactions. Um, basically sunburn, right? Um, and the, I mean, I saw photographs of them. I actually went to attended a talk by the pathologist that did the research, and they it was nasty. Um, and they it was linked to alfalfa, but they were never able to actually find whatever the compound in the alfalfa was that triggered the photosensitization. So there are plants that we know that can lead to photosensitization, such as St. John's wort. Um, and they've actually identified the chemicals in those plants that cause that, but in the case of alfalfa, they have not. Um, and it is something that it's potentially individual horses. Now, scratches, you know, that's a pathogen dermatitis, that is, you know, and I'm certainly not a dermatologist, so um, it's a little different. I mean, it can be similar, it can be a photosensitization, and it could be um, due to that if your horse is sensitive to it but certainly the ones that i saw it was pretty extensive sunburn like on their noses as well and some of the paint horses had sunburns on other white areas of their body so um i think it's something we don't think about in the summer in horses we see sunburn and we just think oh it's sunburn and we don't realize that that it can actually be due to a number of different things either compounds in plants or it may actually be due to some liver issues so i would not um, casually pass off sunburn um, in a horse. I think it is worth a conversation with your vet um, to make sure that you're not actually dealing with any kind of um, secondary photosensitization due to liver issues. So I just want to kind of put that out there as well because I don't think many people realize that that's actually a thing. Our next question is for Dr. Jacobs, um, and it is from Robert in Massachusetts. And Robert asked if a few carrots given daily as treats require adjusting the horse's nutrition plan. Can you give them enough carrots where where you need to change what you're feeding? You know, yes, you can give them enough carrots, but it's 
highly, highly unlikely. And a few carrots a day absolutely is not going to make any difference in, in the overall nutrition plan for the horse. You know, when we think about a horse, you know, con- consider a 1200 pound horse that's eating 2% um, of his, of his, his or her body weight, um, you know, on any single day, that horse is going to be consuming, you know, 24 to 25 pounds of dry matter on any given day. I don't know off the top of my head what a carrot weighs. I do know that it probably weighs, you know, under about a quarter of a pound and, and you're really not going to be making that much of a, that much of a difference in, in the overall horse's diet. Um, I, I do love Robert that you're thinking, you know, about the horse's diet as a whole, because yeah, if you are providing, you know, three, four carrots in the morning, three, four carrots at lunch, three, four carrots in the afternoon, couple that with some other treats here or there. Yeah. Maybe there is a consideration that you need to think about. Um, but overall, um, you're really not going to be making that much of a difference in the horse's diet. And Dr. Michelle. Jacobs, yes. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yes, Dr. <laughs> I was going to say, Dr. Pagan actually looked at this because he helped source um, feeds for the Olympics. And at one Olympics, they were shocked at how many, literally it was like, I think over a ton of carrots they a were ton, asked to ship yeah. in. So, <laughs> yeah. And so they actually studied it. Because he was concerned, at least from a vitamin A standpoint, whether or not, you know, if, if these competition horses were being fed this many carrots on a daily basis, did it need to be looked into? And so he actually did look at it, and the answer was no. It was not an issue. Oh, well, that's I remember. I, I remember. Sorry, I, was saying, I remember talking to Dr. Fagan about that study, and he showed me the pictures of these literal pallets yes. of carrots. And it was, it was more carrots than I've ever seen before. So, yeah, it was, it was fantastic. Yeah, yeah, I boarded this past winter at a barn where they got food service bags of carrots. I didn't know that you could get bags that big of carrots or carrots that were that big. So um, I, I can see horses getting plenty. <laughs> we went through a lot of carrots at that barn, so very spoiled horses. Uh, but Dr. Jacobs, if you have a horse, like you know, Dr. Tunis had mentioned earlier in our conversation about equine metabolic syndrome and insulin resistant horses, do you have recommendations for those horses that are sugar sensitive, um, what you can give as treats instead? Um, I'm thinking of mine. I have a one with PPID. It's really hard to get his medication in him without putting it in something sweet I'm just like oh is is the sweet thing that I'm sticking it in uh, too much for him yeah it's a great question you know there are some companies out there uh, you know uh, Purina is one of them that we have you know treats that, that are designed for carb you know sensitive horses so, you know horses that are sensitive to non-structural carbohydrates but again largely a, a very small amount of a treat um, you know like you had mentioned um, to get some medication into that horse you know it, it is not going to to make that that big of a difference you know if there is if there are concerns um you know about the overall starch and sugar i would say sure stay away from something like a peppermint that is 100 percent sugar um you know and, and offer that horse something else you know you know even you know offering them a small part of their concentrate diet you know as as you know as remove that from their their am and pm ration and provide them with a small portion of their concentrate diet as a treat you know providing a horse with a, a small amount of a low a low starch and sugar feed as a treat you know horses that see something um different from their current you know their everyday diet is something that they that they're going to be very excited to see um so i would say that there there's lots of options um you know out there for, for you to to provide some of these things you know even um uh, you know uh, making some some apple sauces for your horse that are not that don't have added sugar in them. Yeah, they do have some sugar, naturally occurring sugar, but again, it's such a small amount relative to the overall ration that that horse is consuming on any given day um, that it's not going to uh, make that much of a difference. Uh, and Natalie in our live audience asked a question along what I just asked you, and she's saying specifically for her horse with a history of laminitis, are carrots and apples uh, too sugary for those horses? 
I'm so if, you know carrots and sorry yeah yeah so carrots and carrots and, and apples do do have sugar in them um but again i'm going to go back to to again you know commenting on it all goes back to, to the amount that you're feeding to that horse. Um, you know, a, a small amount of apple, a small amount of carrot, you know, being fed to a horse, even with a history of laminitis or, or a horse that, you know, is afflicted with, with equine metabolic syndrome, um, you know, is not going to, to play havoc on their, their glucose and insulin response in, 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 their, in their bodies. Dr. Tunis, our next question is for you, and it's from Janelle in Washington, and she wants to know if Tef hay is good for easy keepers. Yeah, TEF has become quite popular. When I lived in California, it was grown locally there. And at that time, it was sort of, that's where you got it from. And now I'm seeing it grown all over the country um, in the United States. So it's certainly gained popularity. Um, and um, it is certainly very popular uh, for people who have easy keepers. And there is this belief that it's sort of a safe hay, in inverted commas, for those easy keeper, insulin sensitive, or uh, insensitive, rather, horses. Um, and I think on the whole, it is a good choice for those horses, but I just would caution that, you know, I've definitely seen hay analyses for TEF hays that I wouldn't consider safe for those horses. And I've seen hay analyses from other types of grasses, orchard, timothy, brome, that would be safe for those horses. So if you're feeding a horse with a laminitic history, I would really encourage you to test your hay if possible, because it's not as simple as just saying that all TEF hay is uh, safe for horses that need a low non-structural carbohydrate diet. Um, you know, there is variability um, based on growing conditions, region, maturity of the plant when it's cut. Um, all those play a role in addition to the type of plant that it is. Um, and so really without testing, you just don't know. And as I say, I've definitely seen tests on TEF um, that were higher in non-structural carbohydrate than I generally would like to see for one of those types of horses. And I've seen other types of hay that people always say, oh, I would never feed that. It's going to be too high in sugar, but come back, you know, actually safe to feed. So, um, but generally speaking, yes, it is a good choice. Okay. We have a question from our live audience, Dr. Jacobs. This one's for you. Heather wants to know if milled flax is hard on a horse's liver. That's a very interesting question. Um, Dr. Tennis, I might turn this one over to you. I, you know, I know a lot about flax. I haven't really evaluated. I haven't really evaluated flax relative to the liver of the horse. You know, I know obviously flax, you know, contains fat, and and, and the horse's liver is responsible for producing, you know, enzymes, or, you know, that that help to break that down. I haven't read anything specific to milled flax and its effect on the horse's liver. So I don't know if you have either. Isn't there something, Dr. Tunis, uh, that people are concerned about flax and want it's soaked or not soaked or something. This is ringing a bell. Oh, well, Does that's, that ring a bell that's for you? The cyanide. Yeah, oh, okay. that's cyanide compounds yeah. that people okay. worry about. So maybe that's what they're worried about with the liver. And and I should clarify before everyone's going, oh my God, there's cyanide in fact. I'm freaked out. Let me just back up here a second. So yes, there there are compounds that um, have, I don't know if it is a cyanide compound, it certainly has cyanide-like tendencies. Um, but it's very, very minuscule, and there's been research looking at it that it's not an issue. And um, I'm trying to recall, Dr. Jacobs, I don't know if you can chime in. I think if you soak it, it's, you're more likely to release those compounds, and if you don't soak it, um, I'm trying to recall. But again, the amounts are so low, and you'd have to feed so much flax yeah. for it to be an issue that it's just not an issue. Um, so I don't want anyone to panic about feeding flax. I feed flax personally. 
I don't have a problem feeding flax. So, um, you know, as far as the liver thing, I'm sitting here and like you, I'm like, wow, this is an interesting question. Um, I'm thinking actually, unless it's something I just don't know about, which is quite possible. <laughs> I don't even know an expert in that liver. Um, I, I, I learned something from the new liver. with all of these things. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm thinking the omega-3s in flax might actually help uh, the liver yeah. if you've got a horse that has any kind of liver inflammation type situation going on. Because the omegas, that's why we tend to feed a lot of flax these days, is because, yes, it is high in fat, but the type of fat tends to be, um, it's higher in omega-3 fats and omega-6s. And we think of those as being fats that help regulate inflammation. Um, and so if you have a horse that sort of has a liver condition, feeding omega-3 fats might be beneficial. Um, but I would have to go away and do some research to really come up and give you a super confident answer on, on that, um, the role of flax in the liver. Yeah, the, the only thing I would add when you, when you talk about the cyanide toxicity, you know, and, and this goes back to, you know, the questions that we had previously about processing of grains. Um, you know, when you process flax, you reduce those components as well. You, you inactivate them. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, processing flax, you know, producing a pellet or an extruded nugget or, you know, providing to your horse milled flax that's heat treated reduces those, those issues, you know, almost basically eliminates those issues as well. So that's why, again, to your point previously, processing is not a bad thing when it comes to, to some of the grains and the, and the products that we feed to our horses because it reduces or eliminates some of those, those potentials. Right. And I know when, when I was a kid, we used to boil flax on the stove um, mm -hmm. and make linseed jelly, which absolutely stinks and looks like snot. Um, and the horses love it. <laughs> but I will say that, you know, omega fats are not very heat stable. So if you're somebody right. that's still still out there kind of doing that traditional processing in your kitchen of cooking your flax before you feed it, you may actually be getting rid of some of the benefits of why you would feed it in the first place. Yeah, because whole flax, it goes rancid pretty quickly, doesn't it, if, it gets, if it's not stored in the freezer? Well, once you crack that shell, so it's like a lot of things like oats yeah. the same way, right? Once you, once you crack that outer shell, all the goodies on the inside are now exposed to oxygen. And so yeah. there's oxygenation that can happen and degradation that will occur. So that's why most of the flax you buy ground, you know, get a commercial sold ground has been stabilized so that yeah. the fat doesn't go rancid and it, it maintains its nutritional value. Yeah, I'm just old enough to remember... Oh. When everyone just started oh. feeding flax and would grind it in coffee grinders before there were any commercially mm -hmm. available flax feeds. So, sorry, Dr. Dr. Jacobs. No, I was just going to add, and if you are feeding, you know, if you are feeding flax to your horses to add omega-3s to their diet, but you're worried about some of these compounds, um, the compounds are, are completely absent in flaxseed oil. So flaxseed oil is a way to provide mm -hmm. the omega-3 uh, fatty acids mm -hmm. to your horse. Um, and, if, and if you're concerned about it at all, um, flaxseed oil is a, is a very safe and effective way to increase the omega-3 fatty acid uh, concentration in your horse's diet. Dr. Jacobs, our next question is for you. It's from Ray in Arizona who wants to know if first cutting of hay is best for horses. So this is a hard one. Hay is getting really expensive. You kind of get what you get currently, at least in the market that I'm in. Is, so he's asking about first cutting. I've always thought maybe second cutting was best for horses, but maybe uh, maybe you have a different information for us. I absolutely love this question. And you're right. Hay is becoming 
hard to find and very expensive. Um, you know, if we take a step back and think real quick for those that still question, what does first cutting mean? What does second cutting mean? It, it means exactly that, right? First cutting is the first cutting of hay that comes off of a, of a field, and second cutting would be the second cutting um, that comes off of that field. Typically, when we look at first cutting hay, um, first cutting hay is typically a more mature plant, so you'll see more seed heads, uh, depending on, on, on the variety of grass, if you will. Um, but you're also going to see a more dense hay, a thicker stem, um, you know, but you're also going to see a hay that has a lower nutritional density, so less um, nutritional content. Versus a second cutting hay, um, the reason sometimes first cutting hay is, is less expensive is because that usually the first cutting produces more hay for the farmer. Um, so that's just another thing to think about. Versus second cutting hay, which will typically have a little bit higher of a nutrient composition, but also that comes with that sometimes is a higher starch and sugar level. So, you know, I don't like to say first cutting is better than second cutting hay um, because first cutting hay may be entirely appropriate for a certain class of horses or a certain group of horses. Um, versus other horses, which may require the the more nutrient dense um, hay um, that is present with the second cutting hay. So, you know, it, it really just depends on what the individual needs of your horse, um, you know, of your horses are. Dr. Tuna has mentioned, you know, getting your hay tested, which I I can't agree with her more. I think getting your hay and your pasture tested um, is one of the most important things that you can do as a horse owner uh, to understand what it is that you're feeding to your horse. Um, you know, but but first cutting and second cutting hay, I would say not one is not better than the other. They're just different uh, from each other. And again, just to wrap it up, first cutting hay, typically less nu nutritionally dense uh, versus second cutting hay, which typically has um, a little bit uh, higher nutrient level, calorie level, protein, but also starch and sugar level as well. We have a follow-up question, Dr. Jacobs from Betty in our live audience. She wants to know which hay is best for an insulin resistant or metabolic horse? Great question. You know, I like to look at haze um, for, for insulin resistant or metabolic horses that are lower lower in starch and sugar. Um, you know, typically, you know, it may be a hay that would have less voluntary intake, but you don't want one that's going to have, you know, no voluntary intake, right? You don't want to feed, in some cases, I actually have recommended feeding straw to horses for those very insulin resistant horses. But, you know, for, for, for the majority of metabolic horses, you want a hay that has a decently high um, ADF level or acid detergent fiber level and a neutral detergent fiber level, the NDF level, um, but that is low in starch and sugars as well. So I think of a hay, um, you know, like a, a, even a mixed grass hay or a coastal Bermuda grass hay that will be lower in starch and sugars. You know, there are some Timothy hays out there that are low enough in starch and sugar that would be appropriate uh, for those horses as well. Um, you know, but again, you really want to test that hay because there's such a variability you know, when it comes to the hay that you're feeding horses, I have seen, you know, Timothy hay tests at, you know, 12 to 18% starches and sugars. And I've seen Timothy hay tests at, you know, six to 9% starches and sugars. And so it, it can be very variable, um, you know, depending on the hay that you're looking for. So for those horses that are, you know, afflicted with metabolic syndrome or, or laminitis, a first cutting hay that's low in starch and sugar um, would probably be a very appropriate hay for that animal as well. We have a question uh, for Dr. Tunis. It's from Mary Jane in Florida, and she said that her barn gives the horses a bran mash once a week. Is it healthy for them? Not really. <laughs> Let's just start and cut to the chase, right? Um, so the problem, I mean, I grew up doing this too. I come back from fox hunting as a kid and steaming, you know, bran in the feed room and smells amazing and the horses love it. And you feel like giving them a lovely treat and it just feels like a nice thing to do and it's you know 
we do it because we think it's going to help them, um, you know, to have a laxative property and help make sure they don't have any impactions and that kind of thing. But the reason it does that um, is that it sort of disrupts the hindgrot microbial population. So um, I'm a grew up in pony club and we have rule, 10 rules of feeding. And one of those rules of feeding is make changes to your horse's diet slowly over time. And I think many horse owners um, do that, right? They kind of wouldn't dream of just like switching their performance feed, like say going from a performance feed to a senior feed overnight or whatever. And yet somehow when it comes to brand mashes, all bets are off, all rules are out the window. And we just make these suddenly rapid changes. We just stop feeding what we were doing. And then on Sunday we feed a brand mash or what have you. And so the, it completely shocks the digestive system. And that's one of the reasons why it has a laxative property is that you kind of, um, you know, really disrupt the microbial population, which is not something we really want to be doing. So, you know, we've moved away from brand mashes as being something that should be done on a weekly basis. It used to be part of what we used to do, especially in our working horses that worked Monday through Saturday and had Sundays off. We would cut out their grain. Um, because they were tend to be feeding very high grain diets, like cob and the like. And then on Sundays when they didn't work, we would cut all that out and just feed them a bran mash. And then Monday they'd be back to grain again. Um, we just we know more now. We understand the digestive tract better, and we realize that that's just not a smart thing to be doing. But people want to feed mashes, right? It feels good to feed your horse something. Um, you know, especially in a cold climate, something kind of we feel like warm and toasty. You're going to warm them up. Um, so if you're somebody that really wants to do that, there's a couple of options. There are a number of mash products out on the market um, that are a little more like what you feed your horse on a day-to-day -day basis that won't disrupt their digestive tract quite as much. You can just take what you feed normally and turn it into a mash. You could take, you know, if you even if you just feed your horse hay pellets, right? Turn that into a mash. Um, turn your horse's regular senior feed into a mash. Like you can create a mash uh, very easily without relying on brand. We have a question from Debbie in our live audience, Dr. Jacobs. Uh, this one's for you. She wants to know if apple cider vinegar has any benefits for horses. Yeah, you know, apple cider vinegar is something that um, I've actually looked at and started to to think about from a from a research perspective. And again, you know, it comes from the the human side of things. You know, apple cider vinegar um, has been indicated to play a role in affecting the microbiome, um, you know, of the horse. Um, you know, there's also been discussion of apple cider, apple cider vinegar, excuse me, and its ability to um, acidify the horse's, uh, the horse's stomach. Um, now we think about that and go, well, wait a second, aren't we trying to sometimes buffer the horse's stomach to reduce the incidence of gastric ulcers? So, you know, I'd say that the, the marketing far outweighs the, uh, the actual uh, research as it, as it relates to, to apple cider vinegar. Um, you know, for me, I would say this is one of those ingredients or one of those compounds that fed to horses based on all of the data that we know right now, um, it, it's not going to hurt your horse. Will it provide any benefit to your horse that we know of at this point? Um, you know, I can't say definitively, you know, I've seen everything from the ability of apple cider vinegar to ease arthritis in horses, you know, as it relates to mane and tail conditions or treating hoof problems. And, you know, it's highly unlikely that this one, you know, product does all of those things. Um, but there is one, um, you know, aspect of apple cider vinegar that has gained some interest as it relates to natural insect control. Um, you know, there's, uh, there's other compounds like garlic and lemongrass um, that have also, you know, gathered some attention in this area as well. Um, but, you know, when you when you feed your, your horse this this higher or feed your horse this apple cider vinegar, 
um, there, there's a thought that some of this does get excreted through their skin or some of the breakdowns of this get excreted through their skin, which actually detracts from biting mosquitoes and flies. And so I would say that if you feed apple cider vinegar to your horse, and I, I personally couldn't tell you how much to feed them, I would imagine it's not as highly palatable or it's not very palatable. So it, it would probably decrease the palatability of what you put it on. Um, feeding apple cider vinegar to your horse um, is probably not going to uh, hurt them. In, in any way. There is also some really interesting uh, data out there in humans specifically related to apple cider vinegar and its ability to increase salivation. And this is one of the areas that I'm interested um, in, in apple cider vinegar is if we can feed this to the horse and actually increase the amount of saliva that they can produce. Uh, because as Dr. Tuna said earlier, it does you know increase the, the buffering ability or the buffering capacity of that saliva um, into the stomach, but also to the previous conversation around choke, saliva is very important for lubrication of the esophagus. So if we can increase the amount of saliva that's produced, well, that would be pretty fascinating as it relates um, to, to reducing the risk of choke and otherwise. Is that true in horses? I don't think we know the answer to that question yet. We've still a lot of research out there to be done. Well, we have about three minutes left, so we're going to do a rapid fire round here with a couple of questions. Um, Dr. Tunis, we have Jody in Florida wants to know if it's okay to feed alfalfa in horses or free feed yeah. alfalfa to horses. Oh, free, free feed. feed. It wouldn't be my it wouldn't be my first choice um, just because it is exceptionally high in protein and also uh, pretty high in calcium. So it wouldn't be my first choice. But I think we're entering a period with hay prices and availability that. Um, sometimes you just got to do what you got to do, but it wouldn't be my first choice. Yeah, I have one. I think if I free fed her alfalfa, her face would be in it 24 hours a day. <laughs> so, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Dr. Jacobs, we have a question from Tammy in Georgia who wants to know how soon after feeding a horse can the horse be worked? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, it depends. That's a good. What are you feeding your horse, right? Um, you know, it used to be that no, don't feed your horse before they work at all. Um, but now that, that has shifted very drastically to it's, it's actually a good idea to feed your horse some forage um, before they exercise. It actually keeps the uh, gastric acid that's in their stomach from splashing around, as Dr. Tunis was talking about earlier, reducing the risk of gastric uh, ulcers and gastric ulceration. Um, we do like to delay um, working until three to four hours, um, at least after that horse has had a large concentrate meal. And this really relates to the uh, insulin responses that horse is consuming. Um, the peak insulin response after consuming a meal is typically around two to three hours after that horse has consumed that diet. Um, and by about four hours afterwards, that insulin is returned back to baseline levels. And why this is important is because of the mobilization of glucose that's necessary for that horse to, to perform whatever that activity is. And so if insulin levels are very high, circulating insulin levels, the mobilization of glucose becomes very difficult um, in that horse's body, which can potentially reduce athletic performance. So when we're talking about concentrates and grains, I do like to say, um, you know, don't exercise that horse or work that horse for about three to four hours after they um, um, have consumed that, that meal. But when it comes to uh, forage, um, it's, I think it's very important to feed that horse up until the point that they're going to be exercising. And Dr. Tunis, we have a question from Susan in North Carolina who wants to know how soon after riding she can let her horse eat. Yeah, again, similar kind of thing. It depends what it is. Um, they can have access to forage pretty quickly afterwards. I tend to hold off on concentrate grains um, for a little bit longer. Um, but um, forage can be actually a good thing to put in front of them, actually help with rehydration because when they eat forage, they actually tend to drink. Um, so it can actually be beneficial um, from that respect. Okay. 
Well, thank you for getting to a few more questions there at the end. Uh, we are out of time for tonight, but I want to thank both of you, Dr. Tunis and Dr. Jacobs, for joining us. It was a fun conversation. Yeah, it was great to be here. I appreciate the invitation. This was fantastic. We also want to thank Purina for sponsoring this event. And finally, thank you to our audience for listening and submitting all these great questions. Until next time, from everyone at the horse, have a great night.